Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What time do you usually wrap up then if um, you're kind of starting at eight in the morning? Um, oh God. Seven, eight. Sometimes I have dinner and then I go back into the studio. <laughs> um, so yeah, it just it just depends on on the deadlines we have. You know, I generally, you know, we work a lot. We, you know, to keep up. Uh, I, th- I think that's the price we pay for having such an awesome job. Is is just you know to to keep to keep the jobs going. You you have crazy deadlines, and you know what happens in post too. That that doesn't get talked about a lot is our schedules change very dramatically so you'll agree to do a gig and they'll say okay you're going to be done in january you say okay great i'm going to schedule everything so i'm done in january oh i have a new film started in february perfect easy and then the film that you're supposed to be done on in january goes another six months because they decided they want to re-edit or do some additional photography or need more time to you know to for visual effects or something so we inevitably have things get overlapped which is not ideal but it's a bit of the reality of of how we have to work in post unfortunately does that mean you have to let projects go sometime um you try not to do that i i you know this is why you know as composers you know like i try to operate like an auteur where i'm really creating all the all the compositional material and and really kind of with fine brush points and and doing amazing trying to keep trying to keep the bar super high but there are times where you know you have to have your team help out especially on stuff like tv and um but that you know most of the time the team is just conforming arranging printing cues but you know sometimes additional music is necessary and that's just the reality of of what we do you know that's how i got my start is helping out other composers um it's a great training ground you began as a trombonist right playing in orchestras growing up yes (laughs) yes i did you did some research that's fantastic well i'm intrigued because 
I used to play in orchestras too. And when you do that, there's a lot of time where you're not playing and you're just sitting there and you're listening. And I'm intrigued by what did you learn from those moments where you're not playing and you just have to listen? What did you get from that? What did it teach well, you? Well, I, I once had a professor who, looking through my work, and this is why I must have been about 20 years old, said, oh, you, you know, your orchestral writing is very mature. Like, how, how would you explain that? And I said, well... I sit in orchestras all all the time, you know. I and and oftentimes I'd sit there with the scores. So you're exactly right as a trombonist, you know. I remember doing Beethoven five once, and if you know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the trombones just sit there for about forty minutes <laughs> before they come in. And so, what a great opportunity for me to just grab the score, look at how, like, you know, you follow the cello lines. There were times where I'd just look at one instrument and just follow that instrument along and and just kind of you know see how beethoven is writing for the cello you know and just okay that's how beethoven likes to write for cello and you know i i feel so lucky that i had that experience i mean i've, I've played you know i don't get to talk about this a lot but i used to play in the new york youth symphony so i've, I've played carnegie hall i've played all sorts of really cool places um all over the new york city and in, in new jersey area i'm playing any everything from stravinsky to bartok to beethoven to john corleano and um but broadway music so i think that is one thing that explains why i'm so voracious in terms of appetite and the projects that i get to work on that i try to work on i try to work on really interesting projects but style is kind of a secondary thought you know that's why you know i get to work on straight out of compton and then greatest showman and then shadow and bone and and then you know escape from spiderhead you know i get to work on projects that are really different just because my background is so rich and varied when you mentioned your professor at the start of that too and how he spoke about your writing was so mature was it very much indebted to beethoven and the scores that you were studying or were you already starting to take on your own voice at that point oh gosh you know that is a great question about one's own voice. I remember a different professor, you know, once uh, when I was 18, younger, starting at at Manhattan School of Music, uh, this professor had asked me, oh, what if I took this music you're writing? I was writing a piece for saxophone quartet. He said, what if I took this piece of music you're writing and played it on the organ? How would that make you feel? And I, I looked at him funny. I said, uh, that would be cool because you're playing my music. Awesome. <laughs> you know, and I, I just, you know, he wanted to have this high level conversation about style and sub substance and one's own voice. And it was, I had a really great time at Manhattan School of Music because four years later at the very end, so flip side, I'm 21, 22, finishing my senior year. I'm taking a class with that professor, very advanced 20th century music class where we're talking about everything from Schoenberg and Stravinsky to Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, and uh, Ludoslavsky, you know, like just insert names of uh, Ligeti, a lot of Ligeti, I remember. <laughs> and um, he started having a conversation with the class and I was able to like, to interject and have this conversation with him, an advanced conversation about theory and harmony and why Stravinsky was voicing a chord a certain way. So I... <laughs> That's a long way of saying <laughs> something very simple, which I think is voice to me is very much learned and uh, slowly and 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 developed slowly. And, and I know there are some composers who, from a very young age, immediately have a voice and a style. And I was not like that. And I feel like I'm still not like that. I feel like I'm still really developing my style and my my voice. I feel that that's something that's going to that's, you know, 
that I'm going to work on for the rest of my life. And uh, so I don't know. I guess the quick answer to that question, yeah, still developing my voice, working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that idea you mentioned there of some composers having access to it immediately is really fascinating in context of what you were saying there about having to learn voice. Is it something that's always within you and it's a case of learning the abilities to reach it? Yes. I'd say, you know, the older I get, the more I believe what you're saying, uh, what you just said, which is that it's a matter of tuning out the noise and listening into what really is inside of you. And I know that sounds incredibly new agey and silly, <laughs> but, but again, the more... I work, the more projects I get to work on, the more I learn to trust my story and what I want to say, and the more confident I get with it, and the more in tune I get with being able to deliver something that I feel is truly me. And, you know, one of the things that, that works against us are these temp scores. And to be clear, I love temp music. Temp music can be incredible because you immediately understand what the director wants, at least good temp scores. You really get to know why the director is making the choices they are making cinematically and how you can support those choices. On the flip side, temp music can be a terrible, terrible thing because now you're locked in to a style and a substance and a tempo and a key and a feeling, you know, that, that you didn't really, that isn't true to yourself. So, that's yet another variable to uh, being a film composer that you need to learn to work with temp music in such a way that you understand how far you could push things in, in terms of one's own style and one's own voice. But then you also can learn, you know, okay, I could push, I could push the harmonic style. I could push the melodic style, but the director needs this tempo. If it's not in this tempo, if it doesn't have this sort of ostinato rhythm, they're not going to like it. But everything else, I'm going to swap. But sometimes, you know, they might say, oh, the pace is wrong, but we like everything else. Oh, so they like it. Maybe they like the harmony of this cue, but I could change the rhythmic feel of it. So I'm going to, that's how I'm going to get my style in here. You know, so <laughs> it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, honestly, it's a, it's, it's a mystery. Sometimes you're like a detective trying to, when you're working with temp music, anyway, you're trying to decode what the filmmakers want, but then also, you know, no one does a gig to not be able to write in their voice, you know? So I'm always looking for ways to get my voice in there. Even when the director says, I love this temp music. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like you work out what's at the essence and what's making them choose the temp music and then you try and filter that through your voice. That's exactly right. That's a great way of putting it. And but but at the same time, you know, what is frustrating about that in some instances is part of that temp music still remains with you. You you might say, "Oh, I really would have written this setup faster tempo or a slower tempo and I let it grow, but the temp music was a certain way." So that's why on something like Shadow and Bone and some other projects I've worked on recently, I try to start as soon as possible. Um, so Shadow and Bone, I started while they were still filming and I wrote a ton of ideas and melodies and themes and textures and all sorts of ideas so that by the time we got into the editorial, there was a bit of a library that we could draw upon that the producers had already given feedback on um, so I understood how they regarded the music I had already written. And so that way, 
you know, the shackles weren't so tight, <laughs> so to speak. You know, there's just a, there's still a temp score, but uh, there's always going to be temp scores to deal with. The, very rarely do I get to work so early on a film. There is a film I'm working on that I haven't talk, been able to talk about yet that we started so early that there it was no temp, you know, and that is something that is really cool when that can happen when you can work without a temp and you really deliver the voice of a film from the beginning zero temp i've been able to do that a couple times before uh for instance only the brave uh was like that with uh joe kaczynski and there have been some other instances tron legacy had no temp score tron legacy and obviously that was staff punk but i was also highly involved in that so uh i started very early on seeing the benefits of finding the voice of the score earlier than what is conventionally accepted with only the brave that's one that really intrigues me how did how did the destructive power of fire kind of influence your approach to that score because it's something that's so present in that movie throughout and in particular in the occasions when you see it on screen it's pretty breathtaking in a strange sort of way well one of the challenges was what is the what do these fires sound like you know I, I i don't think any of us want to find out what they sound like right uh but if you talk to these wildland firefighters it's really amazing they say for those who have survived you know these giant fires bearing down on them uh they say it sounds like a locomotive like a train bearing down on you and so i knew very early on that it was going to be a big broadband sound um and one of the a little side note here one of the best parts of working with joe kaczynski is he's always hiring the amazing sound teams at skywalker sound who i've gotten to know personally now and so we just start talking very early on like, hey what what type of sound are you thinking they are hearing my music very early on so there's this constant communication that we might not have on other projects where you know you're just all kind of colliding at the end but on only the brave it was a case of okay i knew it was going to be this very broadband sound so i need to find pockets where the music could live and what i did very early on before you know again while they were shooting the film i recorded a lot of percussion so that when we get to the end of the film and this fire is bearing down on them you have this percussive energy and i thought that that was a way for me to give a little bit of shape and rhythm to the locomotive bearing down down on you so you have this fire coming at you but you also hear this percussive and, and it's getting faster and faster and faster you know as the scene goes on so that was a really special film to me because it took me a very long time to be able to watch and work on the end of that film without you know having to step out of the room it was a really um and i got to know uh eric's widow and i got to know you know brendan and and it really is wonderful when these films can become something more than just a job you know that it becomes i, I try to make every project i work on much more than a job you know a, a dedication to story and and uh but sometimes it's not possible sometimes it is just a job but on only the brave that that certainly was not just a job that was me really digging in and getting emotionally very very emotionally attached uh to that it, it was really meaningful i'm glad you brought that up because uh i think more people need to see that film <laughs> well it's one that stays with you as well like that the shot that i always come back to is when they're becoming surrounded by it and it cuts to Josh Brolin and you just see that look on his face where he knows. Yep. And it's just that one image that sticks in your mind. It really is. It it I, I see it right now. Just you mentioning it. I see it and it just uh 
you know, let's pray that none of us uh, have to ever experience a feeling like that. But uh, my hope with that score, and I know the hope with Joe was uh, giving the audience a little bit of that perspective, especially after growing so close to this team uh, over that time, as well as then delivering. I, I think I think the 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 most powerful. The, the the two most powerful shots are the one you mentioned, and then there's the one afterwards where where Brendan uh, played amazingly by Miles uh, Teller walks into the gym, and there's that really close up you know rack shot where he just he walks into the frame and and the camera focuses in on him. It's really I, I get I get emotional just just imagining it. So um, that was the reverse musically, you know that was a moment where you get to that shot. <clears throat> I get a little choked up just thinking about it. You get to that shot and the sound goes away. There's no sound. Um, there's no talking. And you just hear uh, a single guitar note, you know? Um, and so uh, my goal with that score, at the end of the day, my goal with that score was I wanted it to feel like Brendan, the survivor, was was telling you the story of his brothers in, in just an intimate setting. Like you were in his bedroom Maybe he plays, he's playing guitar and he's just quietly telling you the story of his, his fallen brothers. And one of the things we did with that score was I'd set up a studio. I'd set up the studio so that the guitarist was in the center, but I put the studio's most uh, legendary, expensive microphone, like this Neumann M M50. You know, they're like 20 grand to get these microphones because the, the components, they're not even made anymore. You can't get them, but it's these this amazing, revered microphone. I put it way far away in the corner, like 15, 20 feet away, and I turned up the gain so that, and I had the guitarist play super quietly so that a lot of the sound you were hearing, it was as little of the direct sound of the guitar and mu as much of the sound of the air in the room as possible reacting to the guitar, if that makes sense, so that it really feels like you are in this intimate setting. Well, it wasn't a big studio. It was a small studio, and uh, I'm really happy with how that came out. I, I think it's a really special score. Where did you get that idea from? How does an idea like that come to you to record it in that fashion? Not my idea. A lot of idea. You, you know, <laughs> I get to be. I, that's one of the most most amazing things about being a film composer. I think is that we are not just composers. We are also we get to be music producers. And I think that's a big difference between the current generation and say the John Williams generation. Now, of course, John Williams thinks like a producer sometimes. Oh, I want a vocal like this, or I want an instrument like this. But the interesting thing, when you look back on John Williams's generation, is the orchestra is almost this fixed setting where you know what you're going to get. You write for the orchestra. And again, I want to be clear. I'm overgeneralizing here. There are many ways to be very creative with, uh, with producing an orchestra. But in general, it's like this fixed object. Um, but film composers now, because everything is digital, everything's in the computer, and we can manipulate things digitally, um, you have all these different ways of working. So for instance, a great example on Shadow on Bone, when the Grisha are manipulating the small science or are using the small science, they're basically manipulating uh, the elements. They're manipulating air, fire, water, that sort of thing. And so the way I wanted to convey that is whenever a Grisha is using their powers, I have taken some audio and reprocessed it. So for instance, in the second episode is the first time we get to see the Darkling perform the cut, which is this really awesome, like basically 
slice through the air that'll just slice anything in half. <laughs> um, and so when the Darkling is approaching, you start hearing these French horns playing these weird textures because it's it's kind of this uh, moment of tension where Alina's about to be killed, so the Darkling has to save her. So, so you hear these French horns playing these weird textures, but then... As the cut, as the darkling forms the cut, it starts going. All of a sudden, these horns start bending, and not just bending tone like by a note, by a by a step or two. They bend like several octaves down. Something that just you can't do as a French horn on the French horn naturally. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of production. Like you can do French horn bends naturally in the concert hall, but not in this way where, you know, it's just bending three octaves down and you're compressing it and, and crushing it with a distortion pedal, you know? So, uh, we get to have a lot of fun. It's also, it, it can be very intimidating, which is why I spend so much time focusing on story because that story is what's going to help me. Like what I was saying with Brendan and the, and the guitar, that story that I'm going to tell helps me determine my musical choices because there's nothing more intimidating than a blank page, you know, a blank page with no, you know, one of the things I love about film scoring is the answers are there. If I pay attention to the movie, if I pay attention to my filmmaker, if I pay attention to the story they're trying to tell, I start to get the kind of like I was saying earlier, the detective thing is like, oh, so your story is about, you know, a lone survivor. Okay. Oh, I wonder. Ah, the guitar, single notes. Oh, yeah, they're from Arizona where country music is popular. Okay, guitar. Yeah, guitar. And one of the things that Kaczynski told me, he said, you know, the, their firehouse, and now we're talking about only the brave again, <laughs> their firehouse <laughs> is corrugated metal. You know, it's just this weird corrugated metal. It's like not even a proper building. And you just walk up to it. It looks like a big shed. And so he said, what, what kind of metal instruments can we have? So a lot of, so while the guitar melodically is, you know, this beautiful acoustic, a lot of the rhythmic guitars, a lot of the guitar textures are, are bowed and plucked dobros, which are, and, and resonator guitars and basses, which are basically guitars that have these metal bodies that resonate very differently than a standard guitar body. So, you know, one might say, Joe, why are you doing this? This sounds silly, like nobody's going to ever be able to tell. But to me, that that is that is exactly why I'm doing it. I'm building a score that is so intrinsically connected to the story that you can't separate it from that is that score is only for only the brave that is the only and, and 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 it's funny sometimes i wonder if if my music gets tempt less because of that because i've crafted you know because sometimes film composers we get jobs because our music gets tempt so your music gets tempt in something and they say oh we really like this music hire that composer but for me my goal is to get hired way earlier than that i want to be hired early on and be a real part of the storytelling what about something like arctic Arctic then because you came on really late in the day when it was pretty much being it was pretty much finished being edited right correct that's correct but you know the same thing still applies and that it's just a different challenge so for instance Arctic was tempted with a lot of like new classical music like you know think of like Johan Johansson and Max Richter you know but it was very acoustic where with with the with you know you hear the orchestra and so and for me I'm going this guy's lost in the Arctic Where's the orchestra? I, I don't want to hear a straight orchestra. I want to hear the Arctic orchestra. I want to hear what the orchestra sounds like here. So I then took it as my job knowing that, okay, 
the director really wants organic textures, right? The director really wants to feel strings and feel like the bows. And, and th so that's clear. I have to do that. But how am I going to make it Arctic? So what I did with that is I... I did two things. One is I, I I altered the instrumentation. So rather than a straight string orchestra, I had a chorus of basses. It was I had 12 bass players. And I wrote for the full spectrum of the range of the basses. So when you think you're hearing like, you know, a string orchestra, no, you're just hearing basses playing high and low. And it's like, it becomes a choir. So when you hear that Arctic theme um, with the simple chords, that's a chorus of basses. But then the... To the added layer to that is I recorded a lot at my studio, layers of basses, some cellos when I couldn't quite get the bass to, to sound exactly how I wanted it. But I would then re-record the, the instruments through uh, resonating, resonating material. And, and when I say that, I had several. So I had a piece of wood where at one end I had a... Um, a uh, contact microphone and what a contact microphone is rather than picking up sound through air it picks up sound through vibrations so you attach it to something and that's how it uh that's how it basically picks up the sound and at the other end i had a resonator speaker and that is exactly the opposite so it's a little speaker if you played music through it and held it up to your ear it would sound like a tinny like you're listening through a, your your little phone speaker um that you normally put up to your ear it sounds kind of like that but then you attach it had a suction cup you attach it to the uh material and all of a sudden it's resonant it's causing that material to resonate and so on one end, again, speaker, it's resonating this big piece of wood. On the other end, there's a microphone. There's this contact microphone. So I was in it, I was in essence re-recording the basses, but through a piece of wood. Uh, I also had a piece of metal that I was using. And then I think most frequently I had used a big water jug, like you see when at, at you know the office water jugs. But I, I had put uh, the resonating speaker on the outside, and rather than a contact mic, I stole a trick from my uh, one of my engineers, Jeff Foster in the UK, who's amazing. He has these water jugs all over the studio when he's recording, and he just drops in like an SM57 or you know another simple mic into it, and it's suspended in the bottle. I did the same thing where I have the mic suspended in the bottle. And so again, I record these basses, play it back through these speakers, you know, re-record it through these microphones. And all of a sudden it sounds like no orchestra you've ever heard before because it's something I've created for Arctic, you know, for this film. So it's a lot of fun, man. It's a little crazy sometimes, you know, but uh, but it's, uh, it's a cool gig. <laughs> <laughs> With that score as well, it almost feels like it's like stretching out over the horizon. Like it has that kind of sweeping quality to it. It was, it was to bring this, you know, how do you bring to life something so lifeless and that's something that the director and i spoke about a lot um you know when when we see him grab the fish for the first time at the beginning of the movie the director said to me this is the first time he's felt something move that's not him he's been in this area for six months you know alone um and this is the first time he feels something moving and so he, you see him holding it you and that's the eyes. first time we hear score. Yeah, exactly. Isn't isn't that great? I I love that filmmaker. He, uh, Joe did uh, uh, did a great score recently, or did a great film recently, I should say, uh, called Stowaway. That unfortunately uh, it didn't work out that I could score it, but uh, it's a great film nonetheless. <laughs> that just came out on Netflix, right? It did. 
It did. That same day as Shadow and Bone. Isn't that cool? I, <laughs> we, 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 we were texting each other that day. Yeah, we were texting each other that day. I was. It was great because that weekend, the number one movie was Stowaway and the number one show was Shadow and Bone. That was really fantastic to see. <laughs> With what you were saying there as well about trying to make something so lifeless come alive, is that why there was so much music in the film as well? Because I think it, the runtime is like 138 and there's like 113 music in it, which is a a huge amount a lot. for a, a film, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm known for these long scores. I the films I get hired for, they I, they generally need a lot of music. Sometimes I, I wish I could be on films where oh we just need 20 minutes of music here and there. It's all songs, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I I I think um, originally there was more music than that in Arctic, and I really pushed Joe to use less music. And I think it was just a when you have a film like that that is almost done and tempt before you're involved that's something i really focus on is trying to just be a fresh voice for the filmmaker for instance this filmmaker on any movie i try to do this but on something especially where i get brought in later like that the filmmaker has been saying this with this movie for six months who knows how long sometimes six years in terms of you know they started the writing the script six years ago or they started the pitch six years ago or something like that and now they're finally making the movie so their perspective might be skewed so when i get brought in i try to be a fresh voice so one of the things i brought to the table there was originally score there's this moment where there's a storm blowing and there's this excitement and tension and then suddenly you know, this big moment happens that is like a, a breathtaking moment. And it used to be that the music played through that. And I said, no, no, no. At that moment, let's cut out the music. And you know what? Let's do what they did in The Godfather where we just cut out the storm too. Like, so there's a great moment in The Godfather where, you know, this train is approaching because they're eating at a restaurant right underneath the train tracks. And you hear this train bearing down. It's getting closer and closer and closer. But they're using that sound. Coppola is using that sound to build tension. There's no score. So building tension, tension, tension. And right when the train can't get any louder, you know, Pacino's character gets up and shoots the two people he's having dinner with. And after that moment, after the gunshots, the train's gone. There's no train. And of course, in the real world, where did the train go? Like the train doesn't just disappear. But in the filmmaking world, the train disappeared. And then that's where the score comes in after that. So it's one of my favorite moments to show how sound and visuals, you could break all these rules and do all this crazy stuff. But the emotion, the emotion and the power of that moment is built by the way the sound and music interact with the tension of the scene. It's so rare that we hear silence, I mean, particularly in modern movies today as well. Like just silence on its own. It's it's a very, I don't know why, as we've kind of shied away from it. I guess with this kind of idea of us constantly needing to be stimulated, it's not as prevalent as it would have been when The Godfather was kind of taking place. I, it's, that's a, I've, I've gotten up and walked out of theaters because there was a movie several years ago that I just, it, it wasn't that the movie was bad. It was just that it was just nonstop music, nonstop sound, nonstop everything. And I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I think, and I think you're setting people up to fall asleep and lose attention too, which is weird. You know, you think, oh, I need to keep everyone's attention. So pulse pounding music all the time. Well, I mean, you, you, if your baseline is pulse pounding music, then, uh, then that is your baseline. You, you need, you need, uh, you need silence to help 
make the music more intense. So that was something we worked very hard on. I guess there is a lot of music in Arctic, but to me, I feel like we fought really hard and we worked really hard. Everyone involved, Joe and uh, the director and, and Ryan, the, the editor, we worked really hard to find moments where we could have silence so that the music we do have uh, is, is, uh, is as powerful as it could be. It's funny, I was chuckling there when you mentioned this idea of you're almost setting up the audience to fall asleep because it's just so constant. I remember a few years back going to see John Wick 2 with a couple of friends and for some reason as well in the cinema they turned the volume up so loud and it was just pounding you the whole time and I looked over about halfway through the movie and one of the guys sitting to the right of me was out stone cold, head back, snoring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's exactly right that's exactly right I, to, to me it's a very primetime network tv thing to just have constant stuff because they're trying to hold your attention oh like where it's housewives are cooking and cleaning and we need to hold everyone's attention i i, I to me like that is not my baseline. My baseline is, hey, we're creating a cinematic experience. How do we how do we take people? It's the roller coaster. Oh, my God, we're going up, 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 up. Oh, we're going down, down. Oh, there's a curve. You know, like that's that that to me, you know, uh, very rarely does a roller coaster. You get in the roller coaster and it just starts with a downhill. Right. You know, the roller coaster starts with you going up, 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 ratcheting the tension. So, yeah, if you just start with that downhill thrill, then then that's your baseline, you know, and that to me, that's not very effective. <laughs> no, you're setting yourself up for a fall. Exactly. It's interesting because we've spoken quite a bit about these kind of crazy recording techniques that you'll use in the the way that you'll come up with ideas that are kind of perfectly suited to the film. When you're in the process of composing the score, does it feel like a series of many victories? Is every time you do that, are you getting a sense of accomplishment and you're one step closer? Or do you only really get that sense of satisfaction once it's fully complete? <laughs> I I get that sense of satisfaction when the check arrives. No, that's a terrible joke. I, that, is not, <laughs> that is not where I get my sense of satisfaction. Um, you, you know, the crazy thing about what we do is it's, it can be very political. It can be very hectic that it's really not until I'm sitting in the theater, you know, lo looking at the film. Uh, that's when I start to feel, oh, I guess I did something, you know, I, it's because real. it's exactly because it is so constant. And I think the mark of any good artist is that whatever we're working on right now is shit, you know, <laughs> like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> what can I do to make it better? I'm always trying to make it better and better and better. And usually when I, you cut to the theater and I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, I guess that's not that bad. I'll never do that. I, I, oh, that was a terrible idea. Let me do it. I'll do it better next time. You know, so I try not to rest on any laurels. I, I love doing these interviews because it kind of uh, gives me a chance to reflect on some cool things I've done. But if, if you gave me Arctic tomorrow to rescore, I'd, I'd score it completely differently because, you know, I'm at a, at a different place in my life. I'm, I'm, uh, thinking about music differently. I have new ideas, new things I want to try. And I think that is the mark of, uh, a good artist he is, is someone who is trying to raise the bar and explore, explore things and even like what i was saying earlier you know that's something i'm a little jealous about of someone like john williams obviously we're all jealous of john williams but uh, but <laughs> you know john williams has this fixed has that orchestra and so because you have these limitations 
he could explore really creatively within those boundaries. You know, there's so much nuance going on in every orchestral cue that he's exploring something new. There's so many ways to explore. Whereas modern production, with all the toys we have and all the plugins, you could sometimes get really lost in trying stuff and just trying wacky stuff because there aren't as many limitations. So I think it is really important to put limitations on you on yourself when you work and for me that's why i again why i talk so passionately about stories because i'm using that story to define those limitations that i'm putting on myself as i work limiting the instrumentation limiting the types of plugins i'm using limiting the types of instruments i could use um is really important that i do that because otherwise i could just get lost uh and just uh, never never complete a single cue <laughs> what were some of the limitations you set down for yourself on Straight Outta Compton. Mm. So on that one, I wanted the theme to be super simple, triadic, especially because I want to hearken gospel music. Um, I make no claims to be an expert in gospel, but I wanted to feel this sense of home, something sacred, something familiar. So that main theme, simple triads, moving in a very uh, familiar way. A couple of unexpected twists and turns, but that was so, so, so important because I wanted the audience to connect with these characters on an emotional level. And that is, I should say not emotional level, on a, on a visceral level at their weakest moments, at their most human moments. Because their music, the music of these characters, Dre, Cube, is really great at connecting you to these characters when they're at their most powerful, when they are um, confident and doing something really cool. There's a lot of bravado and excitement. You know, that is wonderful. That's what's awesome about their music. But what their music doesn't get to is their vulnerability, their insecurities, their weakest moments. And that's something where I felt it was really important to develop a sound and feel. So I spent a lot of time there. The other part is just the action music of that film and my goodness that film is now going on six years old and i feel like uh i feel like i was just a baby when i was doing that i feel like i do things even differently now but what i remember doing for the action music of straight out of compton was i tried to take the film uh tropes that we have for action music which is you know you big drums tycos pulsating synths but i tried to use them like Dre might have used them with like as a sampler. So I wasn't trying to program them like one would maybe program a traditional film score. I was trying to program them like one would program a drum machine or a sampler. Um, so that was the fun I had. Um, I also I also had I want to use eight bass flutes. And since I had a bit of a budget, I just hired eight bass flutes and just <laughs> had them double all the melodies and do all these cool textures. And that was fun. You know, it's, it's, you don't hear it too much of the score, but it provided this really cool organic humanity from time to time. I, as you could tell, I, if, if you give me a little bit of budget, I'll try something new. I'll try something you've never heard before. And, and hopefully it'll be really cool. With what you were talking about there in regards to the action scenes did you learn anything from that that you then carried into stuber yes yes i did stuber oh what was so much fun about that was i got to really play into my sense i really got to play into all sorts of other textures and and 
and plugins that I hadn't used in a while and analog since I hadn't used in a while since since Michael Dallas was going for this 1980s Beverly Hills cop buddy cop uh, vibe I got to do some really 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 cool stuff that I hadn't done in quite some time what surprised you most when you were working on that surprised me how uh, <laughs> how rusty I was at doing those type of driving electronic scores. I hadn't done one in a while. I had just come off of, ah, gosh, was a greatest showman and Arctic, you know, where I was using a lot of organic instrumentation and um, I was still using plenty of synths on those scores to be sure, but I wasn't doing that tangerine dream, Georgia Marauder, pulsey synth thing that I've done before, but I had to kind of, reinvent that side of me and i think that's yet another reason why i love what we do and, and and what i get to do as a film composer is i have this really broad set of skills that i can sharpen different knives in the toolbox every once in a while and and try something different i think i'd be terribly bored if i just scored the same tv show every day and that's all i did or something you know which is why i which is why i try to keep things interesting why i try to vary it up i'll do tv i'll do i'm doing a vr project right now so i get to i i'm, I'm learning how spatial audio works um so it's really important for me to do that and i'll tell you why i try to do that so that whenever a filmmaker comes to me with a story to tell that I can help them tell that story exactly how they're hoping to tell it because of this broad set of skills I've, I've developed that their unique story, I really can tell it the right way and in a, in a unique way. Um, that's, that's why I keep my, these different knives sharp so that I could be a really essential and valuable part of the filmmaking process. I was listening back to the, the last conversation we did a few weeks ago today, and we kind of we rounded up by talking about Stuber. Yes, we started. We should probably start, uh, start restart that one and just get into it. It was interesting because just before we got onto it, you spoke about we were like kind of talking about where you get the sense of accomplishment from when you're working on a score, and you said it was when you're seated in the theater, you're watching the movie, the lights go down, and you see it for the first time with an audience. Do you remember what that experience was like with Stuber? I did. I or I do. I do remember that experience. You know, what was so fun about Stuber, it was it was yet another specific type of movie that I had never done before. And I feel so fortunate that filmmakers trust me to do a diverse set of projects you know i had never done like a buddy cop drama <laughs> um, or excuse me not a drama buddy cop uh comedy but that has obviously some i mean one of the reasons that i was hired is it does have some drama too with um with you know with action with intense action um i think you, you know mike mike douse the filmmaker liked the raid films but he also heard what i could do with electronics so you know he, you know we spoke a lot about 80s uh, buddy cop movies like you know like Beverly Hills Cop and uh, Midnight Run and uh, you know that sort of thing and and about how that can influence the score but yeah once what's so great about the lights going down in a theater and on a comedy film is you have an interaction with the audience unlike any other film you know sure like 
in an action adventure, you might have cheering and that's great. That's always great when you break that seal because it's, it's very hard to get an audience to engage with a film like that. But in comedy, it's it's known that you know you're gonna get the reaction from the audience so the first time i was in a theater seeing that film was actually there were still it was almost done but it wasn't quite done we took a work in progress it was like you know 95 percent done but we took a work in progress to south by southwest in uh march i guess that was march 2019 my goodness uh, wow. time flies i guess <laughs> but you know that and, and and the great thing about south by southwest is everyone's already having a great time they're there to enjoy themselves at a film festival see a lot of live music obviously a lot of bars a lot of great places to eat in texas a lot of great barbecue so people are already in a great mood so it's just awesome as a composer to see I think it's also very it's a great reminder for us that we are just one you know one tool in this vast set of 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 uh of a toolkit that you know you need to make a film work and and in fact um we are very important i oftentimes say music is the most important part of a film in some ways it, it really is it drives the emotion and the intensity so yes that is <laughs> a long answer to your very simple question are you nervous when the lights go down for that first time it depends on the situation you know if the film is finished i it's actually like a bit of a a relaxing moment you know i i've i've finished the film i've actually finished the film you know nobody's <laughs> gonna pull me or call me and say joe we rewrote the ending please you know rewrite the music which which you know happens more than you think so so in some ways it's very cathartic it's very relaxing it's very you know it's like a notch in the belt you know like oh you know another one i did i'm sharing with the world you know and i think that's what it comes down to with me and and not to sound insane or anything but there is just this really cool feeling i get from sharing you know that i've shared this thing that i've helped make with the world if that makes any sense you know i think there's it, it it's where i really take pride in the fact that something i'm doing is contributing to the planet because it's very you know day to day you know 99 percent of the time i'm sitting in my studio working and the lights are down and i'm you know you're wondering what the heck am i actually doing here <laughs> and then you know it's nice that one out of a hundred days or so you get to do a little you get to do a little uh you get to go to a screening or go to something where it says, oh, I'm actually bringing joy to people. You know, I'm actually part of something that is making the world better. And that is great. So, you know, especially over this past year where there have been so many people on the front lines dealing with uh, something so traumatic and, and, and I get to sit at home and feel lucky and just kind of, you know, uh, play with some keyboards and deliver some music. You, you know, how lucky is that? It's it's but it is important to remember sometimes, hey, I'm, I'm bringing joy to people and that is really really important that joy that you get from sharing in that moment how does that compare to when you share the music with you know say the director for the first time is there a similar parallel there does that feeling crop no, up again no <laughs> <laughs> no it's horrifying you know you, you know i really do i've said this before that that first time playing music for someone it, it's like being naked you know it's like hey this is this is my art this is who i am what do you think you know and it's it's it can be traumatic you know if, and 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 that's why it's really important i think one of the important things one of the most important things i've or at least that i've chosen to make important is to try to 
choose who I want to work with. Meaning, you know, I've tried to set up my career where the older I get, the more credits I have, the more choosy I become and the more limited I am in terms of welcoming people into the studio. And maybe that's sounding overdramatic because, you know, there's definitely times where I, I really want a project. And I'm chasing after something, you know, so don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm still out there chasing down projects, trying to meet new people, trying to do new things. But at the same time, you know, we are so vulnerable that when we attach ourselves to something and choose to work on something that, you know, we be a little bit of us becomes a part of that, that a friend of mine used to say that he had a professor that said, you know, you have to be really careful who you date because, you know, they become part of you and you become part, they become more like you and you become more like them and you become a part of them and they become a part of you. And that might sound silly, but I treat projects and, and collaborators the same way that I try to be. Again, I, I've certainly made my fair share of mistakes and worked on my fair share of, 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 of crappy projects. But uh, regardless, I'm, I'm trying to always keep the bar really high and work with great people for that very reason that we are so vulnerable. We're naked and we are just, you know, we we get absorbed into this machine that, um, you know, like there. I like to think of, you know, between Mike Dows, who I just spoke about, uh, Peter Atencio, Joe Kaczynski, Gareth Evans, like the people I've worked with, I've been so fortunate and I'm sure I'm, 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 I'm forgetting some here, you know, like Eric Heisler on Shadow and Bone. You know, there are just so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people I've I've been able to work with. And I always try to to keep working with them because I feel so lucky to have that relationship and have that really rewarding creative spirit with them. I think what you're saying as well there, it comes down to, it's an emotional sacrifice, isn't it? And you want to make sure that it's going to feel worthwhile and you're not going to be putting yourself out there unnecessarily yeah you do and especially if you don't do things halfway you know i i think there are a lot of film composers out there who are incredibly talented at delivering vast quantities of music very quickly for any project you know and and, and can do 12 movies a year or something you know there are they want that third phenomenally house. talented yeah exactly <laughs> exactly they you know they want exactly they want that third house they want that you know for me it, and i'm not saying i'm any better or worse than than those composers it's a different thing that drives me i think you know for me i'm i'm chasing after something that is infinite you know this art you know and, and 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 look i know how silly i am saying that in that you know film music you're delivering a service and you, you know like a lot of artsy folks will look down at 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 film music because of that but at the same time I think of film music and film as its own art and that I love to be a part of and and I respect it greatly. So I'm trying to deliver something infinite. I'm trying to deliver something that can't be cheapened to, hey, I spent two weeks on this film and then I spent two weeks on another film and I get a big check and then, you, you know, I buy that third house. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to chase after something different. But, you know, like I, you know, it would be nice to have that third house. I don't know. Maybe I'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> Heck, it would be nice to have that second house at this point. <laughs> so, look, I think, I think, I think, you know, there's a great. If you look at the at at our industry out there, there are a lot of really unhappy rich people. So, I think it's really important to remind yourself that, uh, you know, if 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 the only thing driving you is money, the arts is probably a really bad place to try to do that. <laughs> 
Did you come to that revelation quite early on that you needed something more from it and this wasn't just going to be a service for you, providing a service for you? No, I'm, I'm really fortunate that... I had some great mentors. I think the most important in that regard being Daft Punk and, 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 and if anyone who knows Daft Punk's career and, and knows about them, you know, they know that they're very mysterious, they're very picky. And, and they told me, you, you know, Joe, what, what, defines, your, what defines your career is not what you say yes to. What is going to define your career is what you say no to. And I think that I that, that really hit me really hard. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's other people you know, as well, who have kind of shared that spirit with me, you know, I feel very fortunate that, you know, look, I'll just come out and say it, I did not spend a lot of time at remote control, I, I knew some composers down there, I knew some people down there. But you know, that is a very, you know, and what's so weird about that place is there are some amazing composers down there who deliver amazing infinite music, Hans, obviously being the head of it, you know, that he has delivered the scores where he really pours himself into is some what's, of the finest. Work. What is remote control? Sorry. Oh, sorry. That's Hans Zimmer's uh, studio. Ah, that's okay, his, okay. his multi multitude of buildings and composers and and whatnot. And I think again to be very very clear, uh, Hans and and a lot of the people down there deliver some of the best art being created today. At the same time, they've been able to build this branding that delivers vast quantities of music. And you know, if you just go to them and say, "Here's a million dollars. I need you to score my movie." You know, you might get, you know, just the supermarket version of, 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 you know, Inception, you know, which, which to me is, is a great tragedy, you know, so, uh, so it's interesting, you know, I luckily was not very much exposed to that mindset. I'm, I do wonder if they're in a different timeline had I've been mentored that way that maybe my belief set would be different that I would say, hey, I, this is what I believe, you know, nine out of 10 films that you do are going to be bad. So why think about them? Just deliver the same thing you've been delivering, just output the same thing, you know, just change a few notes, just deliver the same cues again and, and, and then move on with your life. At the same time, I feel very strongly that when a filmmaker comes to me, and they ask me to be a part of their work, that they're inviting me as an artist to truly represent their film and to truly deliver something special and to and to become vulnerable and to really deliver that. So I uh, and again, that's why I try to be a little bit picky, because, you know, that is what I'm going to do regardless. I'm going to I'm going to get naked and get in bed with your film and, and, and do something really special for it that, you know, and so there are times where I say no, because I realize they just want me to deliver, you know, they want me to to deliver Tron or they want me to deliver the raid or deliver something else I've worked on. And you know, that is, that is something I try to avoid. So anyway, you know, I probably gave too much into the weeds and people are going to yell at me and get mad at me because I'm saying <laughs> stupid stuff. But you, you know, I, uh, it's interesting. I think, I think all we have at the end of the day is this, this, this magical art, you know, I think, I, I don't think, you know, when I die, there are going to be people who point to, the special art that I created, not the fact that I did 5,000 movies, <laughs> you know, they're going to, uh, you know, hopefully I'm remembered for that handful of scores where I was able to really, and those handful of projects where I was able to really deliver something super special. And that's because whenever I approach a project, I try to deliver that, you know? So anyway, now I'm getting sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> what scores that you've worked on so far, do you feel fit into that group of special experiences for you? 
Oh, it's hard. It's hard for me. You know, it's like asking someone with 10 kids, you know, who's their favorite, you know, because for instance, there there are projects I've worked on um, where I'm super proud of the music, but, you know, uh, nobody really, you know, the film wasn't seen that much. Like, for instance, there's a great little film I did um, with a really great writer, director named Ornuziel. It's called Shimmer Lake. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix film. Um, and I think it's a really cool score. And it's a really cool film. So, you, you know, that uh, I'm not saying that's my favorite project I've ever done, but it is a really cool score that I'm really proud of. And I'm really proud of that film and how it turned out. So, you know, there are all sorts of those. I think that's the unfortunate reality of our world is that, you know, you pour your heart and soul into something, but you don't really have a have control over what happens to it. So that was a cool indie film that we sold to Netflix. And when I, I use the word we very generously, I, I was not involved <laughs> in selling it to Netflix. I'm just the composer, the producer sold it to Netflix. And that's it. That's it. You know, the soundtrack, I was able to work out a soundtrack thing with Verez. The soundtrack came out on Verez, you know, and and so that's out there. But, you know, like there's a handful of projects like that. You know, I think um, it's, it's really rare when you have something like Shadow and Bone where Shadow and Bone, I poured my heart and soul into and I said, I have a feeling this is going to be super cool. I'm going to go not only do my usual, you know, just getting naked, but I'm really going to go that extra mile and craft something really special and thematic and bold. And I knew that the showrunner was game for that. And the producers came to me knowing that I could deliver something like that. It was a very specific, we want, you know, we want you to score this thing. We think you're going to do a great job. And so I said, great. You came to me because of my, taste and my talents and my the way I think about things so I'm really going to do something special and it's very rare again it's very rare when something actually hits the zeitgeist and people are into it and people see it and a lot of people are become fans of it and there's award season talk and whatnot so it's really special when that happens it's not what drives me like I'm not driven by oh this show might be a big hit and might get some awards like if I if that's what drove me my goodness maybe I'd become one of those guys who scores you know 10 movies a year or something <laughs> but um but uh but uh but um it, it sure is nice when that happens, I guess. Does your approach differ in any way when you know something is going to hit the zeitgeist? Because like, you know, Tron Legacy, for example, or Oblivion, you know, when you've got Tom Cruise at the center of that, you know these films are going to have an impact as you're working on them, I imagine. It's impossible for me, you know, I think, I think it would be silly for me to say, oh, no, I approach everything the same. I, you know, yes, of course, you try to give your heart and soul to everything you work on. That's why I say yes. At the same time, obviously, you know, if Tom Cruise is in the room, that's something very different. And so there's a whole different energy there. So you're right in that, you know, in that sometimes these projects, there is a vibe about them or something about them where you know it's going to be different. Um, that being said, that's what I use to try to determine if I say yes to a project is, am I going to be able to commit myself to this? Am I going to want to give myself 100% over to this project? And if the answer is yes, then I then I try to do, find a way to do the project. And if the answer is no, I try to think if if it's really worth me doing the project, you know, of, of other ways, you know, um, that is that is one of the interesting things about Hollywood, right, is sometimes you say, OK, I'm going to do this project because it's a favor to this executive or the studio or this filmmaker that I really want to work with. Maybe I'm not vibing with this 
specific project, but I want to do it to work with this person, you know, or to work with this group of people or, you know, I, I try not to make it about money. I try to make it about that relationship and that, you know, wanting to grow the, uh, wanting to grow the artistic relationship. If that, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to an, an interview with Steven Soderbergh today who kind of said something similar where when he reads a script or he gets offered something, there are only two answers. It's either no or hell yes. Oh, that's great. And that's exactly... The best thing is when you... And I went through this recently. I read a script and it was a hell yes. And I made a great pitch to the filmmaker and the filmmaker loved my pitch and then I didn't get hired. And that is unfortunately reality of what we do is that, you know, you try to you try to chase after something with hell yes and it might they might say hell no <laughs> to you <laughs> but uh but that's okay you it, there's a certain amount of pleasure i take by reading the script and coming up with an idea that fuels me you know that is uh, part of the job we've mentioned gareth evans a couple times as well too with the raid movies and the thing that always strikes me about them is that the sound design is such an integral part of the action and the tension is so well done into such a high standard. How does that impact you as a composer? How do you feed off the sound design? Does that impact your approach in any way? I have to say what's so awesome about Gareth is he has his core team with him. And I, I'm bummed I haven't scored his last couple of projects, but uh, it's been his core team of uh, two composers, uh, Ogi and Fajar from, uh, from Indonesia, who be, have become friends of mine because we did one of the Raid movies together and I saw how they work. And they not only write the score, but they also do the sound design. And they have continued working with Gareth. And what's so great about that, and regardless of whether it's the, you know, obviously I don't do sound design, so I don't think you, owe, you, need, you need to be a composer slash sound designer. But the reality is that there is a relationship between music and sound that if done well, there is a, a certain amount of, you know, it's, it, things just lock together, which is why when I work certain projects I work on, I try to really get a relationship going with the sound designer and sound team and to inform them of why I'm making the decisions that I'm making of, of what my take is on the score and what types of sounds and tools I'll be using, whether it's orchestral or, or mostly orchestral or mostly electronic or a combination of the two and what types of electronic sounds, what keys. I might even try to send them some ideas, some music I'm working on because you're exactly right. The relationship between score and sound is 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 perhaps one of the most important relationships in the film because you know there's one visual track and there's one soundtrack at the end of the day the all the sound elements get married together and if you don't know how to collaborate with the sound team then there are going to be issues and there are going to be times where you're going to be disappointed i've spent a lot of my life uh serious and i'm serious i've spent a lot of my life getting to know sound designers, going to dubs. And, and again, I, I think I've probably said this before. I hate going to dubs because they're dark rooms. It's, you know, 90 decibels. It's so loud, you know, all day. Just listen. I put in earplugs sometimes because it's just so unbearable. Sometimes you're just mixing the same scene over and over. But I spend a lot of time seeing how the mixers and sound designers work because that is I mean, that's it for most of the people. Most of the people who experience my work, they're not buying the soundtrack. They're experiencing my work as one unit 
with the film, you know, with the TV show, with that, that experience. So it is my job. If I want my work to deliver at its finest, at its best to be, if I want to be the best film composer around, that means that I really need to truly understand how that final soundtrack for the film is made. And so when I write, I keep the dialogue on most of the time. I keep the temper temp effects on most of the time so that I could hear what the goals are, what the filmmaker's goals are so that I'm crafting the score. Um, someone once said film music is like opera without the voice, you know, and the, 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 the voice is that soundtrack. The, the, the sound design is part of your music. So ultimately, if I'm going to deliver something incredible as a cinematic experience, I need to be aware of the people who are working with me on that final sound print, you know, and that includes the sound designers, the dialogue editors. So, you know, my, my entire studio, for instance, the speakers I use are, are JBL speakers, which some composers might look at and be like, oh, those aren't as expensive as my super fancy ATC or PMC custom designed $100,000 setup, you know? And it's like, well, nobody has those speakers. And in every theater in the world, there's either JBLs or Myers. My room sounds just like a theater. So that when I go to a dub stage, I hear exactly what I intended. That's how I mix. All my, all my mixes come out of my room. And when I go to the dub stage, I hear exactly what I was intending to hear. And it's taken me a long time. I've been, I've had this goal for 10 years. So <laughs> it's taken me a long time to figure that out. And I think, I think more composers would be better served with that as the goal rather than just kind of buying whatever fancy stuff is 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 hot right now you know but but that's me personally and and there are a lot of great engineers and mixers who work on very fancy expensive speakers so great <laughs> does that change again though when you're working on something like a vr game and you're kind of dealing with spatial sound well i you know i i have a headphone i'm looking at right in the corner over there that uh i'm so so two things i have a set of headphones where i've attached a bluetooth um uh, head tracker so that I, and it, it works uh, coincides with a plugin I could put in Pro Tools that allows me to basically you know put on these headphones and move my head around and hear sound in a 3D environment uh, that is very basic it's not as awesome as I'd hope but it it gets the job done literally this week uh, my main mix room is is down for the week because we are installing Dolby Atmos and I'll be the first to say some things about Dolby Atmos are a bit of a gimmick, but the things that aren't a gimmick about Dolby Atmos is, is the spatialization technology and the way it scales up and scales down. That's really exciting that you, if you are tuned properly to a certain Dolby spec, that you can take your music into the VR world, into a theater or to an iPad, you know, and, and you're going to hear a certain, you know, it's going to translate in a certain way. So that's very exciting for me to now within my studio be able to access that. And, and you're exactly right. I'm actually um, last year was the first time I worked on a VR project. We are working on further installments of that VR project. And so I'm trying to learn. Um, actually, that's a lie. Uh, a couple years ago, I worked on a different VR project um, that was more of a short film, less uh, less uh, interactive than what I'm working on now. And uh, it's a film called Myth. I'm really proud of it, actually. It was with uh, Disney Animation. Really proud of that score. Had a great time doing it. And that felt like my primer 
into VR. And it feels like now that I'm doing this truly VR, people can get their Oculus and experience this thing. And it's a, it's a star Wars thing. So they get to, you know, hold a lightsaber, you know, in, in VR, that is really cool. Now I feel like I'm really in it. So I'm trying to learn and, and everyone's involved is teaching me, you know, uh, all about it. So I'm trying to get better and better, better at it because, uh, again, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand how my music is consumed and used and become better at making a better product. If that, makes any sense it sounds you know we start with uh, a few minutes ago we were talking about uh, art and and creativity and now i'm talking about like it's a product but you need a bit of both in order to be successful in this world i think i think as well with what you're saying there that that a star wars game would probably be a good first foray into that vr world would it because you have a slight familiarity with a lot of the sounds that is a good point the the other thing too is how are we going to go back to Star Wars as a film once you can truly be a Jedi? <laughs> I, I think we're still in its infancy. There, 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 there are a couple of episodes of the game that I'm working on, or you know, or and if you look at the first one, that one, you get to be a Jedi. You know, you're you're trading to be a Jedi. How awesome is that? And it feels like it's still very much in its infancy. Uh, I, maybe ten years from now, maybe maybe a year from now, or five years from now, but I. I feel like 10 years from now, the experientialness of it, um, it's going to be hard to go to a theater and watch a Star Wars film when you could sit at home and truly become a Jedi. I, and maybe I'm overblowing this, but it is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Does it feel more like a new art form to you, do you think, as opposed to a continuation of cinema? Yes and no. You know, uh, yes, in a way that it is something completely new. At the same time, it is a game. It's, but what are games? You know, games are storytelling that you get to choose your own adventure and and test your skills. So, look, I, to me, everything is related to wall paintings and and telling stories around a fire. You know, in a in a cave, ten thousand BC. You know, I I think everything is related. Everything at the end of the day is storytelling, and that is something else that I find very important to what I do. When I whenever I sit down and try, I'm trying to score something. I go, what are we actually trying to say here? What is being communicated in this scene that is that is furthering the story and how am I trying to tell it and that is something that carries over whether it's a short film or a you know a Marvel movie or a Star Wars film or a, a incidental music for a play which I love doing when I can or a podcast you know, that carries over to everything there's something if you as a composer can help someone tell a story. You can essentially do anything. And then all this stuff we're, we've been talking about, like sound design and speakers and whatnot, that's just extensions of the story. That's just allowing me to be a better storyteller. At the end of the day, we're just storytellers, you know, when, when, when you bring us down to our most simplest. It feels crazy as well. I mean, I remember reading, like, Choose Your Own Adventure books as a kid. And now it feels like we're at the point where it's almost like you're in the book itself with this whole kind of new frontier of VR and where we're going to go with that next. Absolutely. There's a, there's always going to be a place for cinema. You know, you don't want to just pick up a lightsaber and, you know, spend a bunch of calories in the after every day. Sometimes you just want to sit down and let a film wash over you. So I'm very much someone who thinks that cinema, a dark, big, dark space, you know, cinema will be around as long as humans are in existence. 
will it be the same as it was in the year 2018 or 2011? Uh, obviously, no, but uh, but it will be part of what we do. Um, and so it's important for me to, yeah, sometimes I, 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 I've, I've spent a lot of time gearing myself to deliver for music for a dark theater and, and, and really sound cinematic and sound great on big speakers in a dark room. And everything I've done for the past two years has been streaming. So, you know, sometimes it's a little depressing, but at the same time, what are we doing? We're telling stories. And that is something that is, if you can tell a story, that is something that is future proof. Because as long as humans are alive, we have the need to share and tell stories. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.